Uh, this morning, we are really privileged to have our guest speaker from the retreat here to open the word for us. He'll be preaching from our gospel passage, at least I think so. He's a tinkerer, he said yesterday. So the last I heard was he's preaching from Mark 14. We'll see if he calls an audible. But uh, John, I want to invite you up. John is a pastor in Atlanta at Cornerstone uh, a Church there, a church plant in the west side, he was telling me. And he's also uh, connected with good friends of ours, Aaron and Michelle Reyes and Hope Community Church, part of the Creek Collective and that network of churches. And John yesterday preached from Psalm 32 and Habakkuk, and it just was a huge blessing. It was solid food, uh, like the Hebrews passage spoke about. So as he comes to open the gospel this morning, I just want to pray for John. So would you, where you're seated, just extend a hand with me, and let's pray for John as he comes to open the scripture for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for John and the gift that he is and that he can be with us here this morning. We thank you, too, for your word and your Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of these words. Would your spirit now work in and among us to open our hearts and our minds, and uh, would the words of John uh, be uh, your words to us this day, O oh Lord, and we want to receive all that you would have for us. Uh, be glorified in these next moments, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I don't know which way is up or down with this. I'm on now? Okay. Good morning, church. Good morning. All right, there we go. Y'all are better than they were yesterday. I had to chide and just sprinkle a little bit of shame there to get people to talk back. Uh, yeah, like he said, I'm John. I'm a pastor in Atlanta. Uh, I am originally from this great nation of Texas, born and raised in Houston. Uh, yep. I uh, went to school at Baylor. My wife is from Austin, and her family still lives uh, on the east side of Austin to this day. So my wife and daughter couldn't be here, uh, but I am honored um, to be here with y'all. Why don't y'all breathe a word of prayer with me once again, and we'll dive right into our passage. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, thank you for the family uh, that you have designed, Lord. Uh, we know that wherever we go on this day, we can be surrounded by people who may look different, but they have the same hearts towards you, God, the same love, the same admiration, Lord, the same, uh, yeah, hearts just uplifted in praise. So, uh, God, we join in today with the rest of your people, uh, glad that you rose from the dead, that you're seated in all power. Would you fill our hearts today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I don't know about y'all, but um, I think I struggle with prayer more than any other discipline, right? Um, so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I would imagine there's a bunch of y'all that would raise your hands if I asked, do you struggle with prayer? And so I just hope that this passage provides a brief encouragement for all of us that find ourselves struggling to pray period, but much more when times are hard. Yesterday we spent our time starting to talk through what it looks like to pray through troubling times. Today we're going to see the product of that. And so um, I will start off with a quote uh, from one of my favorite philosophers. The quote goes something like this, um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The philosopher was uh, Michael Gerard Tyson, and he said it on the eve of a big fight. So Mike Tyson's getting ready to find himself in a big fight, and a reporter comes to him, and they say, yo, 
what are you going to do? Your opponent is big and he's fast and he's quick and laterally he can move from side to side. How are you going to stand up to him? And Mike says this, um, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody imagines that they're stronger than they are until something unexpected comes and blindsides them and then they realize that they aren't as strong as they thought that they were. They shrink back and they fall. Figuratively, I got punched in the mouth about six and a half years ago. So after a conference, much like the one that we did yesterday, I sat down to a meal with some friends um, and I get these repeated phone calls from my mom. And when I call her back, um, uh, she's trying to track down my older brother, can't really get a hold of him. So she asks me to call uh, around and find him. And after a phone call with my god brother, uh, I run into the second biggest surprise of my life. And that was this, my 32-year-old brother who was a pastor in Memphis, wife and three kids in the best shape of his life, uh, died in his car. No cause of death, just went to sleep and didn't wake up. And I say it was the second biggest surprise of my life because the first biggest surprise of my life took place in the months that follow. So you see, we were six weeks out of planting the church that I pastor right now. And I think more surprising than the sudden death of my brother was how quickly my faith unraveled. Everything that I thought to know to be good and true about God, everything I've spent the past 18 years of my life preaching and teaching and sharing all seemed and it felt like a lie. C.S. Lewis, when he talked about the death of his wife, said that he came across something similar. And what he said it was, you know, I realized that the temple of faith that I thought that I had was nothing more than a house of cards. Does anybody know what that feels like? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Suffering blindsides us. We're unprepared for it. There are things in our future that may not take place that we can see with crystal clarity, right? The uh, wedding that we hope for, the birth of a child that we hope for, the graduation from a school that we hope for. There's things that may not take place that we can see with absolute clarity, but there are things in our future that are inevitable but are unimaginable. And so, I'm up here today really just wanting to ask and answer this question, how will you respond to the hard times, not if they come, when they come? How do we face those adversities and hard times? And the reason why I bring that up is because of this. All right, some of us in this room are going to deal with the idols and the suffering that comes with prosperity. There's some of us that are gonna live the life of Ecclesiastes, where you're gonna get the life of your dreams, the job of your dreams, the home of your dreams and all that, and you're going to have to wrestle through what it looks like to remain faithful to God when you're on this perpetual mountaintop. That's some of us, that's not all of us. All of us are going to deal with adversity, what it looks like to stay faithful to God when we find ourselves in these valleys that we just can't get out of. And I want you to know when adversity hits, there is not a person in here that wades those waters like an Olympic swimmer. 
All of us do all that we can just to try to stay afloat. And so instead of spending our time daydreaming about prosperity, which our world leads us into this morning, I want us to talk through how we are going to prepare for adversity. Uh, Because it doesn't just affect you, how you prepare affects the people that you lead. It affects your kids that are right next to you as they look up to mom and dad and see how you deal with these tough times. It affects the people in here or out there that you disciple and pour into. And so for that, we want to turn to Mark chapter 14, what we read. A little bit of context. Context is really going to be key. This story of Jesus praying in the garden, it is sandwiched in between the betrayal, or, or it's sandwiched in between the Lord's Supper and the actual betrayal, all right? So here's what takes place. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives his disciples an invitation to be weak. So he looks at them and he tells them, hey, all this is how it's going to go down. One of y'all is going to betray me. None of y'all are going to stand by my side. But he says it not to indict them, not to make them sad, but to make them sober. Jesus knows that they're not going to have the courage to stand with him when the hard times face him. But he's saying, I know this about you already. There is no, like you're going to make a discovery about the fickleness of your own heart and you may be disillusioned by it. But Jesus tells this to them on the front end because he wants them to know he's not going to be disillusioned by them in the same way that they are about themselves. What good news that is for God in Jesus Christ to know all our failures beforehand and still inviting us to come. So Jesus gives them the invitation to be weak, uh, but the disciples do not return the RSVP, all right? So Peter basically says, hey, Jesus, you can save your prayers. I've got my resolve. James and John on the way to the cross pull Jesus to the side and they say, Jesus, uh, when you sit in glory, do you mind if me and John sit on your right and your left? And Jesus says, ah, are you really sure that you know what you ask for? And they say, Jesus, we're really tough guys. We know what we ask for. And so Jesus, having already taught on prayer, is going to demonstrate where this true strength comes from, right? Preaching on prayer is one thing, but demonstrating in the hardest times is something completely different, right? When it comes to defining terms, demonstrations do a better job than any dictionaries could, right? A red stove is going to define hot better than Oxford or Merriam-Webster. So Jesus brings them along with him, and this is where we find ourselves in our passage, right? It's going to be in three parts. Think of it like we're trying to paint a wall, right? We're going to put the primer up first, or so I hear. I'm not handy, so I don't do much painting, but we're going to prime the wall, get things set up, then we're going to paint it, right, so that it sticks, and then we're going to progress, look at it and move. That's what takes place here. 32, here is the primer. Jesus is basically trying to help them see and help us see that you aren't as strong as you think that you are. You're not as strong as you think that you are. Look here 
32, look at the place that they go. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. So back in these days, oil uh, would be used to anoint kings, sacrifices, things like that. It was something that was incredibly valuable, but you only got the oil after a time of an intense pressure was applied to an olive. Jesus is leading them to this garden where he is going to be under intense pressure, right? I bring that up just to say, uh, sometimes the Lord leads us into places that are very, very hard and we find ourselves under intense pressure, but everything that feels bad to you isn't bad for you. Look at the people that he brings with him, right? Verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John with him. All right, why does Mark bring us into the fact that he took those three? Because as Jesus was getting ready to go and he talked to them about how he was getting ready to go to the cross, it is uh, amongst all the 12, we see Peter, James, and John professing how strong they are. And so as Jesus get it, gets ready to go into this time, he singles them out and he calls them here not to embarrass them, but to graciously bring them to the end of their strength to help them see you're not as strong as you think that you are. Um, for those of y'all that were at the retreat, I share with y'all, I've got a four-year-old daughter. Um, she was born premature. 30 weeks, three and a half pounds when she was born. We stayed in the NICU with her for, you know, three or four weeks, and by the time we brought her home, she was four pounds. So as we bring her home, my wife's nephew, Jackson, he's two years old at the time, and so Jackson comes over, looks at her, and Jackson proceeds to talk to her, not in his voice, but what he thinks baby talk is, right? Y'all are laughing, y'all may think that's cute. I thought it was condescending. So I pulled Jackson over and, and I said, now Jackson, listen, she's smaller than you and I know you think she's a baby and you're not, but actually you're still a baby. You wear diapers, your subject verb agreement is atrocious, right? Y'all are in the same Spot, I had to pull him aside and say, I know you think you're something different, but y'all are actually in the same boat. This is what Jesus does with Peter, James, and John. And what he often does with us, he says, oh, I know that you're a pastor or a leader or a somebody that's lived a long time. I know you think that you may be cut from a different cloth, but I want you to know that you or just as weak on the inside as the people that you're trying to lead and pour into. Jesus is inviting them to be weak and he's showing them this. Look here at the end, verse 34, or at the end of verse 33, it says this, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34 says this, he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death remain here and stay awake. The reason why I want to bring that up is Jesus brings them into his perspective. One of the interesting things about narrative is that the narrator can tell you how somebody feels on the inside without them sharing. So Mark has already gone to great lengths and said Jesus was distressed. But then Jesus from his own mouth says, I'm deeply grieved to the point 
of death. Jesus shares that weakness. Here he is, the son of God in the flesh, not trying to play the superhero, but inviting people into his very own weakness, his distress, his angst. It's one thing for you and I to anticipate standing in front of a holy God to take on uh, the punishment for our sins. Jesus, when he says, I'm grieved to the point of death, this grief is enough to crush me, he's anticipating standing in front of God, not for his sins, but for all the sins of mankind, and to answer for all of those. And what Jesus does is he invites them into his weakness to help them see you're not as strong as you think that you are and that is okay i bring that one up because right disciplines right when it comes to other spiritual disciplines that we practice inviting people into them often can impress them so if you've got a knack for understanding god's word in teaching or sharing words of wisdom. When you invite people into what you've learned or what you've pulled from the text, they can be impressed. When it comes to prayer and you invite folks into that, you're inviting them into your weakness and they are impacted in a unique way. Church, I want you to know people are often more impacted by the weakness that we share with them than the wisdom that we try to hurl at them from a distance. So that's the primer on the wall. You're not as strong as you think that you are. And that's some of the best news that you've heard all day because you can entrust yourself to a strong God. Here's the, here's the paint, the actual prayer. J.C. Ryle's going to say it like this. Uh, deathbeds are the great revealers of secrets. That what somebody says on their deathbed in their last moments really helps you to see what's really on their heart. The garden of Gethsemane is Jesus's deathbed if there ever was one. I think the concept of prayer in hard times is the most important thing here, but the prayer that he prays is so good that I, I just want to touch on that. Verse 35, he says this, he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, look at this prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said, Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This prayer that he prays, I want to break it down real quick because I feel like it is the template for all prayer, and that is this. Prayer is made up of one part help and one part hope. One part help, confidence in God's ability, one part hope contentment in God's activity. Here's the help. Abba Father, we talked about this last night. His 
confusion, his angst didn't rob him of intimacy with God. He's not just going to say father, he's going to use this term of endearment even as he's agonizing on his way to the cross he's still staying close to God and he says this God I know all things are possible with you and that is such a strong point because there is no prayer without confidence in God's ability Jesus was God from God he's existed since the beginning he's known he knows the ability and the power of God to do all things. So as he's praying, this is not just him blowing smoke. It's not him flattering, hoping that he can get, get, what, get, get what he asks for at the end. You know, I had a professor in school that would say it like this. Uh, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model for what he'll continue to do in the future although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. John Watson will say it like this, referring to Sherlock Holmes. He'll say this, I became so accustomed to his invariable success that the very thought of him failing had ceased to enter into my mind. What he's saying is, I spent so much time around Sherlock that anytime somebody came to him with a problem, I wasn't curious about if he was going to solve it, I was curious about how. And this is where all prayers starts, a belief that God can do the impossible, and Jesus is praying, God, if there's any other possible way, we pray that this cup would pass. But I want you to know this, although true prayer starts there, true peace is never found there. So he is gonna have complete confidence in the ability of God, but he also ends up with this contentment in the activity of God, regardless of God does. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the other side of the coin of prayer, trusting that God can do the impossible and believing that God is good even if he doesn't choose to do the impossible for you. In other words, um, the quickest way to discontentment is holding God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. It's like waiting in the Houston summer for a bus that's never coming. Jesus prays this. What I love most is that it goes on and his prayer is persistent. It seems like he's there for a literal hour at least. Peter, James, and John have the ability to fall asleep two or three times. So it's not as if prayer is just this incantation where Jesus drops down, says these 23 words, and then gets up. There's this wrestle, and we talked about this some at the retreat, to wrestle with God in prayer is not a lack of faith, it's a sign of faith. It's saying, I know that you carry the answers, and the only way that I'm going to get the answer, the hope that I want, is if you speak to me, so God, I'm not going to leave until you speak. It takes time to wrestle our hearts into submission. Jesus prays. And when we talk about where the strength come from in 
troubling times. I think that it's in this prayer that we see that Jesus is modeling the true strength to stand in the midst of adversity comes from a complete and total surrender to God. Verse 37, what he's going to say is this, yo, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Watch and pray so, so that you'll have the strength to stand firm in troubling times. Here's why I say that I think the point of this text right here is not just the, um, yeah, uh, is not just the content of what he prayed, but the concept of prayer. What we have are these differing responses to adversity when it actually comes. Remember at the beginning where I said this story was sandwiched in between the betrayal or the Lord's supper, a time where they profess their strength, and the betrayal, an actual time for them to show their strength. But it's not like any sandwich, right? It's like a vegan sandwich. It's surrounded by promise with nothing but sadness and disappointment in the middle. (laughs) Jesus, look at what takes place here at the end. Look at what takes place here at the end of this story. The primer on the wall, you're not as strong as you think that you are. The good news is you can entrust yourself to a God who is strong. True strength comes from total surrender. And then look at how this story ends. The progress, how he moves forward. One of the tough things about prayer is we can pray out loud to God, but sometimes we're confused as to the answer that God gives. Right? Sometimes God's very, very clear, but sometimes he prompts us and we don't know which way to move. The good news is that God speaks loudly in providence, what he actually uh, lets happen. It's unmistakable. So Jesus is praying, God, if there's any other way, not my will but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, not my will but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, not my will but yours be done. And then it's as if he stands, looks up, and sees people approaching him with clubs, pitchforks, and furrowed brows. And I think he says, I guess God said no. Look at 41 and 42. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Look here, get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, there are people coming to approach Jesus. They are not chasing the disciples that fell asleep. At the end of this prayer, submitting himself completely to the will of God, he doesn't even wait for them to come and get him. He stands up and he says, let's go and meet them head on. I know that's trouble. I know that's adversity. There is nothing more than we would love to do than to avoid this, but I'm confident that if God has called us there, then we have the courage not just to wait for it to come, but the courage to go forward into it. And what's ironic about this story 
is that you have the prayerfulness of Jesus, the prayerlessness of the disciples. Jesus goes and meets his uh, uh, betrayers, the people that have put him on the cross, head first, and the disciples run away from people that aren't even chasing them. If that's not enough, you're starting to think that I'm making too much out of that point. One of the things that you'll see here is in all four of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels give at least a third of their account to the last week of Jesus' life, the crucifixion. Crucifixion was an incredibly horrendous and brutal way to die. Really unparalleled in the history of the world, and it was only around in the form that it was seen here for a short period of time. But the way the gospel writers write about Jesus facing crucifixion is unique. Do you know where they show Jesus in the most agony? Not on the cross, it's in this garden. It's not that the cross was not agonizing, but the way that the gospel authors write that account, you've seen it. On his way to the cross, Jesus seems composed. When they blindfold him and they slap him and mock him, Jesus is sharp with it, he's a little spicy at them back. On his way to the cross, Jesus is carrying his cross and he has the presence of mind to look at his mom weeping and say, Mom, this is your new son. John, I need you to take care of my mom. On the cross, while Jesus is, right, asphyxiating, that's how you die in crucifixion. He's using his final breath to pray to God for forgiveness for the people that are hurling insults at him and reassuring a guilty but repentant criminal on the cross that he will be with him in paradise. If that's not strength to face the most troubling times, I don't know what is. And where did it come from? I think it came from his agonizing in prayer in the garden. I know it may seem like I'm making too much of this point, but I think it's instructive for us because even in the disciples' failure, something changed in them. At the end of the gospel, they run and hide, but in Acts, they're very different people. As Jesus has risen from the dead, something inside of them clicks. And church, here's what I'll say to you. If you find yourself struggling to pray or feeling like, I don't know where the strength's gonna come from in these hard times, I want you to know this truth right here. The way that you pray, more than just about the way that you do anything, reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. The way that you pray, more than the way you do just about anything, reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. It's like this, right? And I'm out of your head and into my seat. My wife and I have been married for about 14 years. Uh, right now, and uh, I still don't know where the measuring cups are in the house. So there's times I'll go to her and I'll be like, yo, Sean, where's the uh, three-fourths cup at? 
and she'll say things like, we've been married 14 years and you still don't know, right? There's times where she will have just like been in the scriptures and read the words of Jesus and she'll come up and say, John, have I been with you this long and you still don't know where to find the <laughs> cups? My favorite one is this. What would you do if I weren't here? That's a rhetorical question. So I think to myself, well, if you weren't here, then I would actually have to do the hard work of looking for it myself. If history is an indicator of the future, I'd probably work really, really hard and not find it. And I just think to myself, right, why would I trouble myself when I could trouble you, right? You're right here. I've been married 14 years. I say all that stuff in my head. I don't say it out loud. <laughs> what I say to her at the end is, but Sean, you are here. If you weren't here, I would have to try to solve it on my own, but you are here. When you look through the gospel, or Acts, and you see the disciples, the same ones that professed their strength, the same ones that ran away from people that didn't chase them, you find them dealing with some very, very hard things. The leader of their movement has died and he's gone. What are they gonna do to replace him? Judas killed himself and he's gone. What are they gonna do to replace him? Acts 2, the church grows and expands. How are they gonna connect all these people and make sure that they're cared for. Acts 4, persecution takes place. Peter and John are thrown in jail. Then they get busted out of jail. Acts 6, ethnic tension threatens to tear apart the very thing that God is trying to do. The gospels are full of people who find themselves in adversity and run themselves ragged trying to fix things. I imagine as acts take place, they find themselves in all these problems and they say, man, what should we do since Christ isn't here? And I imagine they step back and they say, man, if history is an indicator of the future, we're probably gonna work really, really hard and not find the answer. But then I think it clicks in them. No, no, wait a minute. But Jesus, you are here. You actually got up and rose from the grave. So in all those instances that I brought up in Acts, do you know what takes place in every single one that's different than the Gospels? Every problem. They stop and they have these prompt and impromptu prayer meetings. Acts 1, Jesus is gone. What do we do? Let's get up and pray. Acts 1, Judas is gone. We, we got to replace him. What do we do? Let's pray. Acts 2, the church explodes. What do we do? Let's gather everybody and pray. Acts 4, Peter and John get thrown in jail. They get bust out. What do they do? They go back home and they find the people of God praying. Acts 6, ethnic tension is threatening to ruin the church. And before they establish deacons, do you know what they do? They pray. They are reminded that the strength that we need to face any adversity that comes our way is found not in our resolve, but our surrender. And they say to a God who seems absent to our eyes, but is not, why should we trouble ourselves when we can trouble you? And they know that to Jesus, it's no trouble 
at all. Church, that's the invitation that we have. When life has punched you in the face or when you expect something is around the corner, the strength to endure any and every adversity comes in the power and the promise of our Lord who has already gone further into that darkness than you can imagine. He's died for your sins and he's raised for your well-being, for your good, and for the glory of God. And the peace and the power of God is available to you. The refreshment of that is available to you and prayer is your straw to be refreshed by the wonderful beverage that is the peace and the power of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you right now and our hearts are crying out, Lord. Our hearts, Lord, we're crying out in, with all these groans and we're grateful that yeah, you've got the subtitles turned on. We don't know what we need, but you know specifically the needs that we have that we are unable to articulate, Father. So we ask that you would do that, Lord. We ask that you would meet us at the point of our need. We ask that you would strengthen us for the adversity that lies ahead. And we pray, Lord, that we would be reminded that you never get tired of hearing our pleas and our cries for help. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.